Lead, lead, lead. What is happening? Welcome to Working Hours, a show about a place called Leeds, a time called Now, and an activity called Work. Working Hours wants to record 1,000 loiners over the course of this, the most important decade in the history of the human species, and ask them what they do all day and hear how they feel about it. My name is Simon, and this is all my fault. What did you want to be when you grew up? Well, depends on what day it was, largely. Either in a band or a writer. Mm. So I've been in bands and I made my living as a writer for the better part of 30 years. So I'd say I've managed to do what I originally hoped. Mm. So I never made a living from my music, but that's okay. <laughs> I wasn't good enough, so it didn't really, it worked out just fine as it was. So did you get paid for it, but you just didn't make enough money out of it? Or? Oh, um, this was when I was living in, in the States, uh, mm. in Cincinnati at that time. And we, we were in a bar band, so we played Thursdays and occasional weekend gigs and stuff like that. And mix of some covers, our own material. Mm -hmm. um, but no, never going to be enough to make a living from it. That doesn't happen in a place like Cincinnati. So. Mm. And even when I moved out to Seattle, uh, and I got there about the time that, well, a little bit before the whole sort of well, grunge thing mm -hmm. took off, um, I was playing in a small band and in bars and stuff, but again, had a regular day job and wasn't even thinking at that point of, uh, trying to make a living from it mm. i kind of given up on that bit by then you're listening to series three episode 15 and to my guest chris nixon this is another zoom interview recorded on the 17th of may 2022 hello loves the uk should not extradite julian assange just needed to put that out there if you give a damn about a free press and free speech then you'd be wise to care about this matter but we're 21st century humans aren't we Nothing really matters, does it? At least that's what the zeitgeist tells us. We're going to be hitting 50 published episodes soon, so I'm probably going to do something to mark that. I want to change up the static outro for a start. I'll talk about this more as we get closer to that 50th episode. I use Zoom for these interviews. It's a work tool now. It fits for this show, I think. It also glitches. There are glitches in parts of the interviews, in parts of this interview. It's a free show. If and when the show can pay for itself, I'll probably start to let myself feel bad about things like glitches. But at the moment, I have way more shit to worry about. Yes, I'm also banging the mic. I know, I'm sorry. I'm sorting out a shock mount. That's right, I'm going to waffle for a bit this week. If you're new here, welcome. I don't always start like this, and the next intros will probably be back to normal. If you want to get straight into the show, then skip forward about six minutes. Before I start eulogizing civilization and then introduce this week's guest, I also want to give a content warning that there's some discussion of fictional childhood abuse in this interview. Nothing too graphic, but I felt it was worth mentioning here. I don't have time codes on the shows yet, so if you're in any doubt, then please don't listen and go through some of my back episodes instead. At some point, there will be time codes on these. 
If you're still here, please stay with me and my mad mind, and we'll be back with my guest in two shakes of a lamb's tail, as they say. People are people, and the only groups of people we should meticulously scrutinise, watch and criticise are the rich and the powerful, and the systems of control and enrichment that benefit them at the expense of our lives, literally, at the expense of our actual life expectancy and standards of living, our falling pay and purchasing power, over 10 years of cuts and more than a dozen years of money printing, nearly 20 years of bombing the global south, all while increasing atmospheric CO2 to over 420 parts per million. We are all part of this problem, but we can't address any of it until they do. It's a fucking nightmare. Please remember everyone is a person and persons are people and people are people. Corporations, governments and institutions are not people. People don't live for centuries, nor should they. A person isn't that powerful. A position might be. But then corporations and governments aren't anything without people. Just like there are no jobs on a dead planet, there's no institutions without people. To fix everything, we need everyone. If your circle of concern can't stretch that far, don't worry. It doesn't need to. Don't try to love the world. Love where you live, because that's the part of the world that you can actively make better, and it's somewhere that you can see the results of your work. Don't go abroad to build a playground. Build it here. And don't close yourself to strangers. Welcome them in. You don't need me to tell you this shit, but it does need saying much more and much louder in our venal, psychotic, nihilistic and extinction-oriented media spaces. We have a vicious Etonian media and a vicious and callous Etonian establishment in London. As far as I'm concerned, they've killed over 100,000 of us through austerity and nearly another 200,000 of us with Covid. Believe that the state is the biggest threat to your life and realise that the second biggest threat to your life is its ongoing collapse. I've mentioned collapse a few times because that's what I see and experience, but it often looks to me like no one is dealing with reality. I'm not going to sugarcoat or be gentle when I mention collapse. You can't avoid it. It's not in the future. It's now. Everyone in media seems to believe in the power of make-believe that if we just hope something improves, then it will. That if we create an office and a worker for it, someone to put out a press release, then all our problems will be fixed by that press release. If we give a multi-million or billion pound contract to our mates, then it's fixed. If it makes someone money, then it's fixed. After all, the news cycle will just move on. So, it's not like anything real needs to be done, ever, does it? Nothing will be fixed. Next year will be worse. Every year now will be worse. You know this from the last decade, from the last two years, from the 90s, from this century. This is the coldest summer of the rest of your rapidly shortening life. I know, and I'm sorry. I won't always bring this up, but the real situation is too crazy, too dire, and too invisible. We should all be talking about it every day and not spending energy pretending to look happy for social media. I am sick of hearing people in media and in reality talking about a future without mentioning this minor extinction-level threat slash event that is ongoing now and speeding up. Oh, the future is going to be whatever, is it? Where's the land, food, water, energy and labour going to come from when it's all dead? 
Climate change has displaced nearly 5 million people this year in one area alone. The amount of energy returned from one barrel's worth of oil spent on getting oil out of the ground has gone from about 100 barrels worth in the early years of the 20th century to one barrel giving us about 10 barrels worth now. We're hitting the sort of temperatures that literally cook human beings now, this year, all over the world. This is a cool La Nina year. Are we looking mindlessly forward to a scorcher for ourselves and our socials again, or are we getting savvier than that? We're not. I have a friend from Australia over during the next few weeks. I will likely never see him again in person after he goes back this time. Either flying will not be happening, or it will be too expensive, and or even just too dangerous. If politics doesn't stop flying very soon, then reality will melting runways and so forth. Routes are being squeezed. Prices will keep going up as small operators keep going to the wall and the big ones just can't read the writing on that wall until it's too late and they're gone too. All this good stuff we have made for ourselves. We need sustainable transport that is affordable to all. We need the people who work on it to be well-trained, well-treated, respected and well-paid so that it's safe and accessible to all of us. We need it to not run on any fossil fuels. We need to turn off our distance shrinking devices and start mutually helping our actual real life neighbours to help us cope with trying to survive our failing and flailing systems. I need to start working in real life on real practical material ways to survive the collapse of this order. If that's even going to be remotely possible to do before we're all cooked in our homes while still drilling for more dead fossil material to heat our planet, boil our oceans, burn away our forests and our oxygen and kill off all our agricultural crops and livestock. Modern socially controlled mass populations are stupid. I have yet to see any evidence to counter this empirical observation. We need to turn off the trending news wherever we can. It no longer informs. It can't. It is only clickbait now. But don't think about it. It will all go away if you don't think about it. Have another pint, go for another jog, post another inspirational quote, or sit and cry about it. What else can we do? God damn it, the 21st century is the worst. On a positive note, I think that this is a great episode and that it's also somewhat timely given the growing strike wave happening here and now. If you're in a union that is or that is about to take industrial action, then I'd love to hear from you for the podcast. If you're a full-time official in Leeds, I'd love to hear from you. If you have a job you don't like, come on the podcast. We can't all enjoy our work and be able to do something we want or don't mind to do. How bad is it? Are you using the growing network of food banks in this supposedly developed country? Remember, you can appear on the show anonymously if you'd like. Right then, let's crack on with the episode. Chris Nixon is an author and former journalist. At 21, he moved to the US and spent the next 30 years there, returning to England in 2005 and finally full circle to Leeds. He's made a living as a writer since 1994, initially as a music journalist, specialising in world and roots music. His first novel, The Broken Token, came out in 2010, featuring Richard Nottingham, constable of Leeds in the 1730s. There was a real Richard of Nottingham, and that was his post, although it was probably largely ceremonial. The audio version of The Broken Token was one of the independent on Sunday's audiobooks of the year. We talk about Chris's books and his research into the history of Leeds and the importance of the labour movement in our history. You can find out more about Chris at chrisnixon.co.uk. 
Like, share, follow and subscribe to this podcast. It doesn't self-generate and appear freely from nowhere. It takes a lot of time to make one of these episodes. I've costed them at about 300 quid each to make and that's on a low rate of pay. So I really am doing all I can to bring this to you. So if you do like anything at all about it, if you get what I'm trying to do with this show, then please follow and promote Working Hours all around Leeds and on and off social wherever you can, whenever you remember to. Please give money to this show and please give me any feedback, questions or comments that you may have. Email workinghourspod at western-studios.com or use one of my social channels to get in touch. Links for all of those social channels are at the end of this episode. Please share and mention Working Hours everywhere and engage with the show in any way you can. Please get in touch to advertise your leads. Business, campaign, show, event, whatever. If you like anything about this show, please support me in making it however you can. Thank you in advance for your cooperation in this matter. And apologies for the tardiness of this episode. And now please enjoy the totally free and totally ad-free, as far as I know, episode of Working Hours with author Chris Nixon. So what are you doing now? These days I'm, virtually all I do is work as a novelist. Occasional album reviews for a website and occasional press releases for uh, labels or artists. The magazines I used to write for, and I made a living as a music journalist for quite a while, mm. have all fallen by the wayside because mm. it not, wasn't mainstream rock music that I was dealing with. It was roots and world music, which is um, out on the margins. And I was lucky to be able to publish so much about it for so long. Mm. But the economy took care of that. So was that a print sort of death of print media thing, or was that more just the way that the market moved? The market became less interesting. It was a, interested a mix or? of both things, actually. Um, the death of print media was probably a, a, a large factor because when you can't make the money you need to keep a magazine going, mm. what's the point? Mm. And within that field, there's one magazine that keeps going, but, um, I'm not quite sure how. Mm. So anyway, it's fine. Things move on and I'm happy focusing very largely on fiction these days. Mm. Not really sure where to start with this of what, what to explore. I mean, I'll, I'll start then with my COVID question. Yeah. Just, so the question is largely about whether COVID has changed your work or the way that you work or affected it in some way. Um, but I like to go back to sort of your experience of the lockdown and going into it and see that immediate change, like how it affected your work in sort of day to day, whether you were doing more or less. Can you take us through your experience of the lockdown, like where you were and what you were doing work-wise? Um, we were here and I was doing what I always do, which is write. Mm -hmm. So in that regard. I've worked from home since 1994. Mm -hmm. How did it affect me in that regard? Very little. Mm. Um, quite honestly, I loved lockdown. Mm. I'm not a social person. So that quietness, that sense of isolation 
mm. worked for me. I could get out to my allotment, mm. work there. We could get out for walks locally. Um, so in many ways, it had no effect at all on the, on the way I live and work. I, I was working exactly the same as normal. Yeah. And, um, you didn't throw yourself into it more cause it's kind of take your mind off the news or anything like that. No, no, I didn't. I mean, the news was horrifying and there's that constant sense of back then of if I get this, I'm going to die. Mm. Um, but I suppose I'm no different from a lot of other people and that particularly people who are older, mm. uh, like myself, my contacts with people for a, quite a while have largely been online. Yeah. So again, there, there was no change there at all. Yeah. And, um, I was happy going out into the silence. Yeah. And the space. Yeah. 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 So I, I could do the stuff I wanted to do. I had this wonderful thing of once a week, get down and queue outside Tesco with my mask on and mm. do the shopping for both of us. Um, but that was about it. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm one of those curious people who actually enjoyed lockdown mm. and I make no apology for that because it's who I am. It suited me perfectly. Mm. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, there, there was a lot, the quietness and, you know, having that space to move around quiet rows, quieter parks. And when it was nice, you know, busy, but not too busy because people were keeping space from each other and. You know, people are going out a limited amount and kind of, I've, I've had discussions during this where we've talked about, you know, like that sense of on a Sunday when everything was shut or at Christmas when everything was shut. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, yeah, you had yeah. to, you know, it's just everything's shut. You just have to do something else. Um, yeah. And I live technically in a park. Mm. So walk to the end of my drive. Mm. And it was largely empty and it was, um, mm. it was great. But it, that said, it was nice to see the life come back to it as well. Because it is, after all, a poet for the people. And it was yeah. good to see the people able to use it again. Yeah. Well, that's it. You, you know, you wouldn't want to go back into lockdown necessarily. Well, I wouldn't want to go back into lockdown necessarily. But I do think... You know, there were, there were good elements to it and there were good things that we could take from it. And, you know, maybe having something like that, where you have a space of time, like even a remembrance of the lockdown, where you just have a day where it's like everything's closed for a day and, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, something akin to, um, the armistice celebration in a way, because it'd be a good way to remember all the people who did die. Mm. And there were, you know, let's face it, there were an awful lot of them. Mm. And globally, we're never going to know how many. Mm. I mean, the estimate for the Spanish flu, which is the nearest analogy we're likely to come up with, mm. was 50 million worldwide. Mm. 
we're not going to touch anywhere near that largely because we were able to develop a vaccine mm. or multiple vaccines. Um, but it's still huge, huge numbers. I know people who lost husbands, wives, partners, mm. parents, and it will give them that recognition for mm. grievance, for grieving. Yeah, because we've we've kind of gone into it like forgotten about its space now, haven't we? Because it was, you know, it was a big event that affected a lot of people and we're kind of not necessarily processing it yet. And it's sort of, no, we're not thinking about it now. It's over. It's done with, yeah. But it's not. No, no. I want to go back to, because I want to explore, obviously I've got to talk to you about going to the US and that experience um so what what made you move what took you over there was it a band was it just like i've got to see america what what was it uh american american actually oh, okay we started off as pen pals boom we're still at school mm-hmm. um i went on to uni for a year and left she went on to college over there for a year and a bit and left at that point i moved back to leeds i was Living with my parents, and I was working at uh, St. James's Hospital. Mm-hmm. And I got a letter saying, um, I'm, I'm coming over to visit, uh, just sort of out of the blue. Mm. So she arrived. Three days later, we decided to get married. Mm. To be fair, we were 19 at the time. Okay, so, <laughs> so, um, 19 and this pair of basically slightly lesser day hippies. She went home for six weeks, came back over, during which time I, I got us a flat and um, this and that. We, I worked for the NHS, she worked for uh, Lee's Libraries. Mm. You know, good jobs, mm. good prospects. We tried to get a mortgage, mm. but we couldn't, although we had money in the bank. Mm. For our first anniversary, her parents gave us a trip over there. And this was 1975 mm-hmm. and England was not in the best state at that mm-hmm. time, uh, economically in most every way. America was this revelation that it's, um, it's a bit of a cliche, but it's like moving from black and white to color. And. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was a place where everything did seem possible. So mm. she realized she was homesick. So we decided to move over there and um, it took about six months, I think, to get my green card and, and that's what we did, uh, mm. settled in Cincinnati where she was from. And that was that. But could you, except, sorry, except there's a, a, a code to that. Well, we did get divorced a few years later, and eventually, thanks to the magic of the internet, we found each other again on Facebook. Mm. She married again, had a daughter. I married again, had a son, and I was divorced again. Two years ago in the summer, her daughter messaged me and said her mother was in hospital and not expected to live. Mm. Then I got the message the next day, she died. She had a, what they call a brain bleed. Mm. So it was pretty sudden. And, um, it definitely hit me for a loop much more than I would have expected. Mm. So that's the coda to that story. 
Mm. I was was going to ask about the experience of sort of, you know, when you initially landed going into work, like, could you work straight away or did you have to wait for the green card? Did you get sponsored? Well, I had the green card before I I had to have the green card to be admitted. Yeah. Because I was not a tourist. So after that, I was free to find a job, which I did. I've been working in hospitals over here. I found hospital work over there. And this being the Midwest, if you live out in the suburbs, there are no bus services. So Mm. you learn to drive Mm. and you learn quick and you get a car. Mm. So suddenly I'm doing all this and uh, a couple of months after we arrived, I'm driving up Interstate 75. I have a, a Mustang too, which is not the classic Mustang, but still not bad. My leather jacket's on the back seat. Mm. Springsteen's um, Born to Run comes on the radio, and suddenly I'm thinking, yeah, I'm in America now. So um, that was perhaps the, the quintessential early American experience for me. Did you have long flowing locks at this point as well? Not that long. No, you didn't, you didn't <laughs> um, go for the long head. I suppose it wasn't that fashionable <laughs> then, maybe. It was still fashionable over there, but mine mm. would never grow that long without curling up at the ends. So, yeah. So yeah. I never had the chance to do that and look cool on the front. Out of the question. Uh, so, yeah. So, how did you get the first sort of gig writing then? Like, did you, you just found the magazine? Oh, just writing and writing and writing. Well, I, I did a little bit in Cincinnati because they had a, a, a sort of music entertainment paper there, a free one. Mm. Um, and I, I, I sent some stuff there on spec and they published it and I did a few articles for them, but I wasn't really thinking about doing more than that. Um, that didn't really happen until the early nineties in Seattle mm. when I was playing in bands. And there was a very good free music paper there called The Rocket, mm-hmm. which came out twice a month. I started sending them reviews of new CDs. And the editor there said, okay, these sound quite good enough, but keep at it. Mm. And he sent me a couple of things to have me submit reviews. When he started publishing them, then he started having me do interviews and articles. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of grew from there. And within about three or four years, I was a senior writer there. Mm. Just freelance still, but um, yeah. I, I was publishing a lot. Mm. So and I'd taken my clips, sent them off to other magazines, making them seem grander. And if I was publishing in more places than I really was, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a con job, but getting taken on other magazines as well. And suddenly I'm doing all right with this. Mm. And a friend of mine had been offered a, a book, a quickie unauthorized bio that he didn't want to write. And I said, would I be interested? And at that time, I just wanted to write more, I wanted to make a living from it. My son, it was about a year and a half before my son was born, but I was working for a newspaper, but in distribution, and there was a chance that uh, a whole bunch of us were going to get laid off. 
So I said, okay, sure. So I ended up writing a quickie unauthorized biography of Mariah Carey that sold very well, maybe a fair bit of money. And I moved into doing that. And then we had a mortgage, we had a kid. Mm. So I was doing a lot of journalism and I was doing a lot of these books. I think there was one year, but along with all the, the other writing, magazine writing, I researched and wrote six books. Mm. You have a month to research and write a 50,000 word book. And this was before the internet was the source of all information. Mm. So it involved going to libraries, using microfiche, you know, old school research, really. So it became an interesting challenge. And I learned to parcel out my time. Mm. Okay, I need to write 2,000 words a day on this book, plus I have this article, this article, this article to do. From 2000, I was doing regular stuff for National Public Radio in the States as well, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of like Radio 4, doing regular music reviews on their, one of their drive time shows. So I, I was working a lot and yeah. doing a fair bit of the childcare as well. Yeah. So it, it was a balancing act. Yeah. Tiring. Yeah. <laughs> but very lucrative, actually. So, I mean, were you, were you very disciplined or did you just sort of muddle yep. through it? Were you, yeah. So it was like all of these hours are blocked out for what I'm doing and then yep. I'm doing it. Yeah. And I'm still, it, I took very naturally to that self-discipline. Mm. And it's still there. I get up four o'clock in the morning, mm. start work. Mm. And I have the, the set amount that I have to write each day on a, on a book mm. before I can go on to other projects. Mm. So that's just, to me, that's part of just, just part of being a professional. Yeah. No, no matter what kind of job you do. Yeah. So are you someone who does a lot of hours like do you work weekends or are you kind of nine to five i work well i work fewer hours mm. now because i'm just working on the fiction but i do work seven days a week mm. 365 days a year mm. i like that steadiness mm. um i don't like to miss a day i feel guilty if i do something that's probably worth adding is that my father was a writer mm. At least for a while, he, he had a couple of television players put on in the 70s mm. after he'd lost his job. He was a very good salesman. He lost his job for because they basically thought in his 50s he was too old. Right. So he had these, but he never really continued with it past that. And mm. In the 30s and the 40s, he'd been a jazz musician, um, mm. had a jazz band that played around Leeds and really. I never discovered the details of this, but at some point when he was in the Air Force, he ended up playing piano with Nat King Cole at a show. Mm. I don't know how that happened because Nat King Cole was a good pianist himself. Mm. But my father was supposed to have been exceptional. I never really got a chance to hear him. Mm. A far better musician than I could ever have been, but I think those music and writing genes just trickled yeah. down to me. Yeah. He made more of being a musician than I did. I made more of a writer, been more successful as a writer than he was. Mm. 
So make of that what you will. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, there's a. I I worked at this um, conservatoire in London for a bit. I, was, I spoke to quite a few. You know, a lot of the lecturers there were musicians and so on. And um, there's this quote that I'd heard. And I think it was attributed to Charlemagne that you know to oh if to have another language is to have another soul. And I was discussing this idea in in sort of like as music being another language, mm-hmm. you know, that idea of music being the international language. Um, I mean, what I want you to basically speak about here is kind of, you know, what you think is the difference between sort of the expression through music and the expression through language and sort of the relationship that you see with those. I think the music and language work on, on different levels. Mm-hmm. Music, you can understand and appreciate even if you don't necessarily speak the language, mm. it can move you. Music is a, is a far more emotional thing mm-hmm. than language. Language can move you. Um, the poetry of a language can move you, but it can only do that if you speak the language. Yeah. So music has the ability to communicate more widely. Language is only going only going to be able to communicate to those who know. Yeah. That's my take on it anyway. Yeah. Um, okay. So, and then as you were, as you were speaking about, I, I mean, you've kind of touched on the amount of work you had to do for the books and, you know, yeah. the novels. What was that change in discipline? Like, did you like that variety of having different things to focus on? And did you sort of mix that up quite evenly or we just, was one more hasslesome than the other? Do you prefer one over the other? The novels tend to start as the quickie bios tailed off. Mm. The, the internet and then the, the wider spread of the internet killed off the quickie bio. Mm. I mean, why would you want to buy a book that by the time it comes out is out of date when you can get the, the latest information and far more pictures online without spending anything? You know, it's, um, that's perfectly understandable. Mm. I missed the money, but I, I can't say I missed the writing. Yeah. Um, I was still doing music journalism and I was doing a lot of content writing as well. That being a thing for the internet for several years, you know, I was a job in writer. Mm. I was a freelancer. I made my money however I could, mm. but the novels started before I moved back to this country. Mm-hmm. I was still in Seattle when I started the first of these historical crime novels set in Leeds. Mm. And I asked my agent who only worked with nonfiction if she knew anybody who handled fiction. Mm. She put me on to an agent over here. I was coming over to this, uh, visit my parents anyway, so when I was in London, I, I stopped off and talked to her. And she liked the writing, but said, sitting a bottle of consult, mm. write me something else. Mm. So after I moved back here, that's exactly what I did. Long story, she didn't end up taking it, but a few years later, it was published by a small press. Mm. It's called The Broken Token and got very, very good reviews. At that point, fiction was still just sort of a, a small little thing in the the scheme of things, more content writing and journalism mm. 
still, because that paid the bills. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you got to go with that. Yeah. And then the publisher said, uh, right, what are you going to write next? Next, next. And even thought about that. <laughs> Your focus is just on getting the first one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> We've got to uh, do this first. <laughs> yeah. And at that point, there was um, a story in the Evening Post, I think it was, about a book that was found I had somewhere in town. Yeah. And when they had a very old book, an antiquarian book, yeah. when they examined it, they found out the cover was made from human skin. Mm. And I'm thinking, there's a story here. Hmm. And it became the second in the series, set in the 1730s, which became a, uh, one of the top 10 mysteries of the year for library journal. Nice. By which time my publisher had sold out to a slightly larger publisher mm -hmm. who took me on and I'm still with them. Um, more than 20 books down the line. So when that finished and they initially signed me to a two book deal, it was a case, okay, now I've got to write another one, get to that. And then I took off with, uh, other stuff, um, with smaller stuff with other publishers and another series, and yet another series with the same publisher. Mm. So I have now covered leads in pretty much from 1730s all the way up to the 1950s. Mm. And a lot of that is trying to get a handle on leads, mm. what the place is, how it's developed mm. more than anything. What are the people like? Who are, mm. who are we? Mm. Um, not quite sure I succeeded on that. I'm not sure I ever will. Has it part just opened up more questions? Yeah. Part of the fun <laughs> is trying, you yeah. know, it's, um, I'm one of the joys of being able to write strong women, mm. you know, cause Northern women are strong. Mm. Um, I think maybe the early coronation street with Ina Sharples and what have you mm. had an effect because those were very strong women. My mother was a strong woman, mm. you know, it's, um, they had to be. So being able to write strong women, it wasn't a case of, oh, I'm going to write strong women because you have to, <laughs> this is a, this is a, this is a female character and it just turns out that she's a strong woman. Mm. Yeah. Um, nothing more complex than that. So take us through some of the research then. And like, what, what was the kind of, at what point did you kind of get addicted to this, this project of kind of finding out what, what Leeds is and what Leeds is about? Well, for a long time after I left Leeds, I didn't think much about the place. I mean, like a lot of people, when you're 18, you're just allowed to be out of there. Mm. But gradually I I was more interested in it. I'd come back to see my parents in the nineties. And I'd pick up, suddenly there were books on Leeds history being published. Yeah. There were not academic books. Mm. Um, started picking those up and taking them back to the States. Then eBay began. And I was able to pick up a lot of older books, very cheap, mm. except for the postage to get them sent over there. Mm. And I started developing more of an interest in it, um, learning a lot more about it. Mm. And also when I was at school, there wasn't any social history. Yeah. Which became far more of a thing. And I took to quite naturally. Yeah. 
So I was interested in the lives of the ordinary people, not the rich and the titled. Uh, and that's who I began to write about because these people deserve to be remembered. Mm. They're not. So if something I can do can make people think about them, then it's worthwhile. Mm. That and tell a good story as well. Because mm. without a good story, people aren't going to read it. And that's what I've largely tried to do. It's, it's, at times I can be overtly political, mm. but weave it in with the story. I have a book called Gods of Gold, which is set in 1890. Mm. And the backdrop is the, uh, the Leeds gas strike. Essentially, the council tried to fire and rehire the gas workers at a, a lower wage. And you just think, hang on a minute, nothing's changed. Mm. Well, something has changed. Back then, the strikers won in three yeah. days. Yeah. Now, that's not going to happen. Mm. And I just thought, fine, this happened. Let's celebrate this. Let's let people know that it happened, mm. that it is possible or was possible. And it had a real life character in there, a guy called Tom McGuire, who Irish parents, he was ostensibly a photographer's assistant, but he educated himself about socialism. He became a union organizer mm. um, and he was one of the sort of people behind the foundation of the independent labor party in the 1890s. However, he died in a room in Quarry Hill with no heat for the fire and no food in March of 1895 before he was 30 years old. Um, there's a red plaque honoring him in the bus station. Mm. Supposedly, Thousands lined the road to his funeral in Baker Street Cemetery. But how many people ever heard of him now? Yeah, exactly. He's been lost, and he shouldn't be. Yeah. So he became a recurring character in uh, several of these books, mm. and his death was in one of them. Mm. So it's the politics and the history can become part of it. I have a book coming out in September, set in 1917. Mm. And the opening chapter is about the explosion of Barnbo. We heard about it for a little while on the centenary in 19, end of 1916, on the end of 2016. Mm. The excellent play that Alice Nutter had mm. at the Playhouse. But again, it's just kind of dropped out of sight. Mm. It just forms that opening segment to the, to the book. Mm. And it's a case of, okay, this was here. Mm. 35 women died. And because of national security, mm. their deaths were just listed as accidents. Mm. So again, you look at it like that, very little has changed. Yeah. We're still covering up. Yeah. Well, and, and a large part of it as well is, is because of that. I mean, the forgetfulness is kind of built into the media ecosystem yeah. of kind of, yeah. and next, and now, and now this, and everything's devoid of context and nothing's connected to anything else. And here's the other yeah. thing. And here's the things we want you to think about and not <laughs> other things mm -hmm. that we want you to think about. 
uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, how lost have you got in it? I mean, do you, do you just, does it take up all your time? <laughs> or just <laughs> reading, are you just reading stuff about leads or are you, do you kind of have um, to break it up with stuff? Actually, I read a lot of fiction and mm. one of the things when you're doing a series mm. is you reach a point actually where there's less research required. You research the period you're writing, the year or whatever that you're writing about, the events locally, nationally and internationally, mm. but the characters, you have them down. All you're doing when you start writing those characters is you're sitting down with old friends. Yeah. These people are family to me. I love weaving the history in and out. Mm. The, the last novel in this, uh, that series mm. featured uh, a Leeds-born American gangster coming back to see his father. And there was a Leeds-born American gangster. Mm. As far as I know, he never, he's never documented as ever having come back. It was a Madden, wasn't it? Yeah, Owen Madden. Yeah. And he owned the Cotton Club. Mm. He was actually a gangster who survived to die of old age, mm. which was quite a rarity. <laughs> and uh, in New York, when he was oh, late teens, right around 20, mm. outside a dance hall, he was shot about a dozen times and left for dead. But he lived mm. and took revenge. Mm. So maybe he was pretty much indestructible. I don't know. His nickname was Killer. Mm. And evidently he earned it. So mm. lived appropriately in a place called Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. I mean, there was, I mean, I, I don't know. Obviously, I've, I've not done the research to anywhere near the level of you, but, um, sort of seeing those sort of history books that you mentioned, you know, like crime in Leeds and Yorkshire punishments and things like that. You see a lot of quite brutal crimes and stuff, but some of that is, you know, that's from the, I want to say degradation, but that's not the word that I, I mean, um, sort of the, the state of what they had to live in and what was available. Yeah. Yeah. To them. yeah. yeah. I have a series set in the 1820s. The main character is a thief taker. Mm which was a, in a way, a sort of proto-private detective, mm -hmm. but also as close as you could really like to get to police force be before we had a police force. Mm -hmm. Police didn't start here until the late 1830s. Mm. He could get your stuff back if it had been stolen. It was up to you then if you wanted to prosecute the people who did it, but you had to pay for the prosecution. Mm -hmm. And a lot of crimes, which were on the statute books, could get you either hung or transported to Australia. Mm. You know, that was the brutal nature of things. Mm. But he works on recovering stuff for people. He has a young woman who works with him called Jane, who had been a street kid. Mm. Kicked out of the house when she was eight because her father raped her. And her mother decided she'd rather have a wage earner in the house than a child. Mm. And she survived on the street. She can follow anyone. She can be invisible. And her upbringing has made her deadly. Mm. The catalyst for this book is the death of two factory children. Mm. Because the overseers were brutal. 
They just wanted to keep up production. Human beings were a very expendable commodity then. Mm. And, and there the was no regulation. No, there wasn't. You have these kids working 12 hours a day, six mm. days a week, mm. maybe 14 hours a day, six years old, you're doing that. And West himself had been in, grown up in the workhouse. He'd been brutalized in a factory. When he's told about the deaths of these kids, he decides to, it's time for some justice. Mm. And he does get it. And it's a violent book, but there were violent times. And that kind of restitution demands it. I don't think it's violent just for the sake of it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't do that. Mm. But um, I think it makes its, I think it makes its point well. Mm. Have you looked at sort of pre-industrial stuff then, or is, mm -hmm. have you just, yeah. How's that changed from what you've, what you've researched? Well, pre, I mean, industrial really only starts in the 1770s. I mean, did it get more, was it the industrialization that brought the brutality, you know, the, the sort of that process yeah. of inclusion on, 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 yeah. on a large scale? Yeah. Because yeah. it was a combination of things that you have people coming to the cities looking for work because the factories were here, there were jobs here. And also the people in the country under the enclosure acts, mm. suddenly the large landowners had taken their livings away from them. Mm. And that, that often meant their homes as well. Mm. They had no choice. And what you will find is the streets were not paved with gold. Mm. Paved with soot and, and shit. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> The air in Leeds was hugely polluted. Even in the 1820s, mm. there was a permanent pall of smoke over the town. Mm. And the, the, the factories were eager for cheap labor. Mm. Uh, one of the things that, that kind of shocked me when I was researching this, and, um, I do a, a sort of performance piece about all this mix of testaments to commissions along with extracts from my, uh, my novel mm. is they brought workhouse orphans from down in London up to the North to work in factories. Mm. They kept them shackled. They were locked up when they were not working. Mm. You tell me the difference between that and slavery. Cause I'm damned if I know what it is. Mm. Um, And that the punishments that were meted out were just often purely statistic. Mm. So it, those were the times the factory owners, and they were the ones with the money and the power wanted results. Mm. And the overseers had to get them or they didn't have a job. Mm. So that was the system mm. for better or worse. Mm. But it did change gradually mm. and the factory owners didn't want it to change. And the things that were prevalent back then, scurvy, rickets, malnutrition. Mm. Where have we come across those lately? Mm. You know, we're heading back. We're heading in the wrong direction. Mm. Yeah. And that's a Pelt. point I was trying to make. Hmm? Full pelts as well. Yeah. Yeah. And truly abysmal housing. You know, 
what we have now is better, but the bad housing we have is pitiful. Mm. So that's the point I'm constantly trying to make. Things change, but they don't. The things that are changed there, you know, like back to, I suppose, historiography, like this idea, you know, the sort of great men of history kind of role, and then the sort of more modern social history. I mean, the reality of the changes that were made, the, the civilizing changes that were made, is that they were made through people, through the workers and organized yeah. working people. Yeah. And, and the church to a degree, you know, plus or minusly. Yeah, I mean, how long would it have taken women to get the vote if they hadn't protested for it? Yeah, yeah, it would never have happened. I think it would have happened eventually, but it would, God only knows when. Mm. Um, you know, the men in power did not want to cede any of that power. Mm. Those in power now do not want to cede any of that power. That's why you have politicians saying it's right to jeer at people taking the knee. Mm. People shouldn't boo the national anthem, you know, mm. uh, th things like that. And mm. trying to curb the power of unions. Mm. Christ, if it wasn't for unions, we wouldn't even have weekends. Mm. So it's a constant battle, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of that information, like we're all kind of doused in information, but it's mostly, mostly noise and not much signal. Yeah. 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 Go back a couple of hundred years. Not many working people could afford newspapers, magazines, mm. and those who sold them risked being prosecuted for sedition and papers, not, not paying tax on papers and stuff like that. Mm. You will find newspapers pasted up above the, uh, on the chimney breast and, and public houses and elsewhere for people to read. You had the glee clubs where men would join together to sing also plot politically. Mm. Bear in mind, trying to start a combination, which was the early form of the union could get you transported. Yeah. Puzzle martyrs. Mm. You know, it's um, ordinary people have had to fight for everything that they have. And I, I, I think that's been forgotten or quietly swept under the carpet. Well, mm. it's always presented as, you know, being graciously, you know, yeah. gifted to us. And it's, it's not the case. It's like, you know, there's always someone, oh, this person was, they were really great and they did this, that or the other thing that then it's like no there was loads of people that were a movement that put in pressure and that was the person that wrote a law about it yeah but they had no intention of doing that if it wasn't for the political pressure behind yeah in 1832 after the great reform act in parliament initially it didn't say that women did not have the vote mm. when women tried to vote they suddenly thought Oh shit. Mm. And hastily changed it. But a woman from Yorkshire who quite possibly is from Leeds, difficult to trace with a name called Mary Smith, mm. wrote to parliament in 1832 about women having the vote and a, a, a member of parliament read it out and they all started jeering. Mm. 
it gladdens my heart to know that a woman from Yorkshire was one of the first to bring it up. Mm. But I was involved in an exhibition back in 2018 called The Vote Before the Vote, mm. held in Leeds, and it was celebrating the Victorian women who worked towards the franchise. Mm. And there were quite a few of them. Mm. And the exhibition stops in 1903 with the uh, formation of the suffragettes because it became a whole different thing and became a more, more of a national than rather than in the different regions. Mm. But there were an awful lot of women here who, uh, who, who did a lot of work. Mm. Yeah. It, it was wonderful to have a hand in making that more public. Yeah. Sort of uncovering those stories and just that they've always been there and they, they just need to be sort of brought to life and spread around. Yeah. I, the person who did all the, all the heavy lifting was, um, an excellent suffragist historian mm. called Vine Pemberton Joss. And I just sort of helped, but I think I'm probably more proud of that than anything else I've been involved in mm. and writing this fiction has led to me being involved in a lot more things than I ever imagined. Yeah. Yeah. So say you're making up stories, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's taken you in lots of different interesting directions just yeah. because it's had to, because you need, it's like, well, I need information for this story. And then like with any research, you're kind of like, oh, well, I know all this stuff about this thing now. How do I get, how do I use that? How do I get this in? Yeah. Yeah. My Victorian Edwardian series, the main character marries a woman who is the landlady of the Victoria public house at the bottom of Bradley Road, yeah. which was a real place. And so I learned a lot about sheepskin. Uh, my great grandparents ran the place for 20 years, in fact, from the mm. 20, 1920s to the 1940s. Um, so I, I kind of had a vested interest as well. Mm. And doing family research, my family was basically around Cross Green, Sheepska. Those were the two main places. Yeah. Nobody had written a history of Sheepska, yeah. to my amazement. Yeah. So right before lockdown, I'd just become the writer in residence at Abbey House Museum. Mm -hmm. And we're still not sure quite what that means, even after all this time. Yeah, it sounds very cool, though. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. I, I love it. But uh, I'd started researching Sheepscope. And I was over there, and they went through their catalogue, what they had on Sheepscope. And an invoice came up and said, would it be possible to see that? Took it out, photocopied it for me. It's from 1858. An invoice from a painter and decorator with premises in Rockley Courtyard in town, just off the hedgerow, and also at 31 Meanwood Road. Mm. He was my three times great uncle. Mm. And there's a signature on it that looked just so much like my father's signature. Mm. And suddenly history becomes very, very personal. Yeah. And much like when we were at over at St. Hilda's Church in Cross Green, mm. Heritage Open Days a few years ago. Mm. I wandered into the back room. They had um, the honors board from St. Hilda's Church of England School scholarships. And I'm looking at 1925 or 26. Mm -hmm. My father's name is there. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's one of those quite literally jaw dropping moments. Mm. Um, I, I've researched my family history quite a bit. I started out in a place called 
Well, we start out in York, evidently, it seems, in the 1500s, and then to Westow, a small little place in East Yorkshire, mm. not far from Malton. And the man who brought the Nixons to Leeds was a guy called Isaac Nixon, who was a butcher and innkeeper from Malton, mm. who became a butcher on Timble Bridge, which no longer exists, mm. in Leeds. They crossed over um, Timble Beck, otherwise known as Sheepskin Beck. Right, yeah. Just down across from the, uh, well, Leeds Minster as it is now, going towards Marsh Lane. Yeah. So for the last 200 years, my family history is in Leeds. Mm. You know, it's, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel this is why I can write about it mm. because I feel it in my bones. It's in my DNA mm. at this point. Anyway, mm. my mother's family is, goes back a long time in Leeds. And mm -hmm. So it, it just seems to be me. Yeah. I, I, I feel I understand Leeds. Yeah. At least on some level. Yeah. You know, I, I can look at a picture taken somewhere in Leeds and there's a very good chance to be able to place exactly where it is. Yes. Yeah. I have that kind of memory for the place. Yeah. For better or worse, <laughs> probably for worse. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to um, try and power through some questions now. And, okay. And I'm sure we'll come back to some of these things. Um, so I think I wanted to start off with, um, I'll go climate change first and then. Okay. So I'm going to be sort of moving as I do this, but I can make another cup of tea. Oh, no worries. <laughs> so, so ask uh, away anyway. Yeah. Um, so the question, I, I use climate change as like a, representing all of the kind of ecological issues. Um, but the questions to see whether you can do anything in your work or whether the information about that kind of thing is affecting your work and how you work. So can you do anything within your work to adapt to or mitigate or I suppose even raise awareness of climate change? And is it something that's on your radar or is it something that you're not bothered about or like what, what's your work relationship to it? That's very much a concern. You know, I think probably for a, a lot of people, there's certainly anyone who has kids. Mm. <sighs> I suppose in some ways it's there because I, in my work, because all I can really do when you're writing historical crime and nothing, my most recent setting is 1957. Mm -hmm. All I can really do is highlight the increase in soot and smog and dirt mm. in Leeds. And 57, you just had the Clean Air Act and it hadn't largely taken effect yet. Mm. So that's, my characters are concerned with getting by. Yeah. And also back then, while some were concerned with the pollution, Mm. Those voices were very few and far between mm. and not in any way that can figure into what I'm writing. Mm. So it, it's not an issue I've touched on directly mm. because I'd just be trying to shoehorn it in and it, it wouldn't work. Mm. I mean, I think that's a good point about 
you know, you're talking about the level of the air quality there that, you know, that it's so obvious that it needs to actually feature in, in the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's about, that's about as far as I can take it mm. without feeling like I'm, I'm getting up on a soapbox mm. and that doesn't work in a, when you're telling a story. No. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it has to come out of the drama rather than be pushed yeah, into yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I I would say obviously you're doing, you know, you're politically you're doing place-based politics and and telling the history of the city and those sort of, you know, you're thinking local and acting global in writing. You you're quite low impact in terms of your work, I would imagine. Um, yeah. You know, I would imagine you don't have to do a big travel to work, so. <laughs> no, <laughs> unless you can't come in downstairs. <laughs> yeah, and that doesn't use any carbon, I don't think. <laughs> no, probably not. Unless you're streaming something or doing something. <laughs> We're aware. Yeah. And we do what we can. Yeah. That's probably not enough, but we do what we can. Yeah. Um, I haven't really touched on your relationship with the sort of business side. Uh, I mean, we've talked about, you know, your work-life balance kind of stuff. But in terms of that, actually engaging with the market, so editors, publishers, yeah, I mean, we've, we've mentioned them, but sort of that side of the work, like what's, what's that like and what kind of relationship do you have? And do you have any leverage with them? Or is, is the relationship kind of biased one way in their favor of, of what, what, what's it like? Well, I have an agent. I have a, a reasonable relationship with my editor at the publisher and the, the actual copy editing is, is farmed out to a woman who was my original publisher and is also a friend knows my books and understands how I work and someone I trust a great deal. Mm. So all that is fine. Mm. I think inevitably, if you're a writer, unless you're a big self writer, mm. The scale is tipped towards the publisher. Mm -hmm. um, it's just the nature of things. Yeah. You know, the average writer does not have a lot of power. Mm -hmm. And maybe the whole idea of self-publishing has changed that a bit. Mm -hmm. But quite honestly, in most cases, self-publishing does not get you into libraries. Mm -hmm. It does not get you into bookshops. Mm. Not all, but that's in most cases. You know, the, the places where a wider range of readers are going to discover what you have. Mm. So that means you've got to work within the traditional market, mm. which leaves the writer, the options limited for a writer. Mm. So far, since getting published, I haven't had a problem. Mm. Um, has that got easier through practice or has that got easier through, um, sort of validation, credibility, you know, like the fact that you publish books and sold books and they know how to sell your book. And so now you, you know, you've, you've built a working relationship where it's working for everybody now. Yeah. But there's still always that pressure. You know, if those sales slip, yeah, yeah. you're out of there. Yeah. That's business. And having been in the music business as well, even just as a journalist, mm. you know, that's commonplace there. Mm. 
So it's, you know, nothing is guaranteed. There are no jobs for life. Mm. If you could change any three things about your work, what would you change? So you've got to like carte blanche, so you don't have to worry about budget or anything, or you can be as realistic or unrealistic as you want. My books come out in hardback, mm. primarily. And hardbacks, unless it's someone known as a tough sell mm. in a bookshop. Mm -hmm. So I would have my books come out more in mass market paper where they can get into bookshops as well as libraries. After that, stand on their own mirror. Um, I would like to have a marketing budget mm. apart from what I put in myself. Mm -hmm. um, maybe a, a marketing staff for the publisher that could pursue this. Mm -hmm. Those are probably my three things. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> People normally take a lot longer on that. <laughs> it's, um, it might seem relatively small, but it can make a big difference. Believe yeah. Me. And you're speaking from experience as well as, you know, it's like, well, I've been doing this I long am. enough now. It's like, right, I need this, this, and this, and that would make everything so much better. Yeah. 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 You know, it, it's not going to make me into a best-selling writer. Yeah. That's fine. I don't need to be a best-selling writer. Mm. I write the best books I can. Yeah. I just like more people to be able to read them. If there was a UBI, do you think it would affect your work? Or, I mean, you can view this historically as well, like how that might have changed your, your career or your career trajectory. I mean, if there was a universal basic income, the question normally is, would you still work? And if you would still work, do you think you'd still be doing the same sort of work? Well, I'm old enough now that I get a pension. Mm -hmm. So in a manner of speaking, I have a UBI. Mm -hmm. I still write mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. So that answers part of the question for you. Mm -hmm. But there were times in the last 15 years when it was tough and a UBI would have, the cushion of a UBI would have made a huge difference to life stress. Mm. So I would still work, always going to work because I don't know what the hell else I would do otherwise. Mm. Um, it's in me has to come out, but that, having that cushion of income makes a huge change. Mm. It, 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 it's not exaggeration called life change. Mm. So I think a UBI would be life changing for everybody. Mm. especially the people on zero hours contracts, especially mm. the people trying to survive on universal credit, mm. when it's being cut mm. and when all the costs are skyrocketing. Mm. And it doesn't go anywhere anyway. No, completely. And you know, it's all out of their control. Mm. Having that cushion of money makes you feel like you do have some power in the world. Mm. And that's an important thing. Mm. It, it, it gives you more self-respect in a way. Mm. Well, it takes the pressure off as well. Like, I, I, have you seen the thing where, um, I think the study was, it was a study with Indian farmers and they did this sort of dry season, wet season comparison with IQ tests. And yes, we know all the things that are wrong with IQ tests, but, um, basically they were showing a drop of like when there was no work and there was like, you know, an increase in a decrease in the amount of food available and so on, there's an IQ drop because there's more pressure. So more of your brain is taken up with like, how do I pay for this? And how do I do that? And it, you know, mm -hmm. horizons shrink and things like that. 
So loss yeah. of sleep, things like that. Yeah, no, yeah. I, absolutely. Just to, to so, have those worries gone can, can be a huge difference to the way you approach life. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally change your your uh, priorities and perspectives. Um, I want to reanalyze that now through the lens of you know the sort of struggling artist romantic lens. I mean. You must have been telling yourself that to some degree when you started going freelance and, and writing and just, you know, leaving the hospital work, the reliable salaried work and going into sort of, I'm just going to, you know, there must have been a part of you of just, I, I need to go through this to get to the success. Like, do you think that's necessary as an artist to have that struggle and to have that experience of, not having the access to the resources that you need and having to be creative and maybe is that something that's just for single people at a particular time um well i, I was married so yeah yeah and my wife had been laid off from her job she was working part time and she'd gone back to school to get a horticultural certificate mm. i thought i was going to be losing my job which was a decent job in newspaper distribution. Mm. Suddenly, I I was writing and publishing, but there were limits to how much I could do when I was working full time. Mm -hmm. The catalyst was getting offered the chance to do this book. Mm. Um, we discussed it and decided to take the big leap of faith. Mm -hmm. It paid off. Mm. But there's no guarantee of it. Mm. So, and it was tough. My first year was pretty tough. I was working my ass off. Mm. I was, I mean, for the next eight years, I was averaging 70 to 80 hours a week. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And juggling many things because that's what you had to do. Mm. I mean, were you uh, passionate about it at the time? Was it? I oh mean, God, yeah, 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 yeah. Are you kidding? I'd always wanted to write. This is the chance for me to do something I've always wanted to do and be paid for it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was passionate about it. Mm. And even if the first book with my name on it that I held was about an unauthorized biography of my Mariah Carey. It was still my book. It was yeah, yeah. my work. Yeah. Not as much of a thrill as the first novel. Mm. My father was hugely proud that I had published a book. Yeah. And I published plenty more while he was still alive. But both my parents died before my uh, first novel came out. And mm. Yeah. That's I cool. wish they'd had a chance to see it. Yeah. yeah. That is how things work out. Hmm. So, um, Next question is, we'll do Brexit. Um, I don't know how much this will have even registered for you other than I suppose non-work ways. <laughs> um, so the question is basically, has, has it changed your work? Have you seen any noticeable difference in the way that you work now that we have Brexited? Honestly, no, it makes no difference to my work at all. Mm. Yeah. Um, in terms of my work, I live in the past. Mm. I live in, um, you live in a pre-EU world. I was going to say, I live in a pretty common market. <laughs> yeah. Era, so um, 
It's had nothing. I don't even think of it when it yeah. comes to my work. Are you, you're not, um, I, I guess you're, you're working on the latest software. Do you just write with Word or do you have like yeah, yeah. software? I, or, yeah. I write with Word. Yeah. When I started out as a writer, I was using Word Perfect. Mm. When I started out, oh Christ, when I started out, I had a 286 and was using the, the operating systems DOS. Mm -hmm. So I didn't even have Windows 3.1 at that time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was uh, <laughs> interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And I had a dot matrix printer. Mm -hmm. Well, massive one. Not massive. No. <laughs> uh, they make uh, a good sound. Yeah. And um, you, you get all the pleasure of tearing those strips off yeah. the side. <laughs> but um, no, I'm, I'd written a number of novels even before I became a freelance writer, all um, happily unpublished, mm. but those were all on typewriters and I'm so glad to be working on computers. Did you have to do that for yourself? Is it like, I'm not a proper writer unless I do it on the typewriter? Oh no, this was pre-computer era. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't um, like being a purist or anything. No, it was 93. Yeah. Got first computer. Yeah. Which is still relatively early. Yeah. Um, and it was a used computer and printer that cost $750, mm. which was a fair amount at that time. Turned out to be a really good investment. So the question around social media is how much it's seeped into your work, how much time, how much of your working time you have to spend on social media. And you know, if you have to do any of that for, for your work, uh, how much time it takes up and how much sort of return on investment of that time you see, do you feel like it's time well spent? Well, I use Facebook and Twitter. Mm -hmm. How much time? I don't know because I, not that much on Facebook mm -hmm. these days. Mm -hmm. Facebook is a great hub for keeping in touch with people mm. who are friends who are spread around the globe. Mm. And I have a writer page on there as well that I, I do post on, and, but often updates. I do blog every couple of weeks, mostly leads and history related. Mm. Twitter I use more because it's for the social interaction, mm -hmm. but it has proved to be useful in people coming to me saying, would I be, like to talk to library group, book club, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So it, it work-wise, it, it, it does give a return on investment or I don't think of it that I just think of it as a, a way of chatting with people, mm. the, the, the short format of it is suitable. I'm not a fan of the word banter, but it's, it's, it's very good for that with people mm, yeah. joking around a bit and stuff like that. And yeah. um, also you can keep up with news better mm. on social media than you often can on the news sites. Mm. That said, God knows I'm glad Trump is no longer on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, it's just nice not to see some things sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, and have since a break he, from something. <laughs> as this is evidently signed an exclusive contract with his um, Truth Social 
in theory at least, he shouldn't be coming back. Mm. We'll see. Yes. <laughs> we'll live in hope anyway. Um, and then I'm going to ask you to do the self-promotion thing. So where can people <laughs> find you? What should they be buying? What books should they start with? Where can they get your books? My books are available in lots of public libraries, mm -hmm. which is a good way to get them without spending any cash. Mm -hmm. And you really should use the resource of libraries. Cause if you don't, this fucking government's going to close them down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, however, if you do want to splash the cash, there are independent bookshops who will be happy to order in my novels. Or of course there are various online places. Uh, Speedy Hen is good, has the cheapest prices and far cheaper than the uh, big competitor that's named after a river in the uh, South America mm. and they have free postage. Mm. So I would really recommend them. Mm. What should you buy? Well, I have a, my most recent novel is called the blood covenant mm -hmm. and that's about uh, a thief taker trying to bring justice to some people whose kids have been killed. If you want to go all the way back to the 1730s, start with the broken token mm. and the story of Richard Nottingham, constable of Leeds and his family. However, if something Victorian Edwardian appeals to you, Tom Harper series is possibly a good one. Mm. And if you want a very strong woman, the six in that series, the tin God features his wife running to become a poor law guardian. So what that, then, what would that be? Just looking after, you know, members of the poor sort of becoming like a social. Well, no, the, the, in charge, looking after conditions in the workhouse back when what's now the Thackeray mm. was the workhouse, mm. um, before it became East Leeds hospital, before it became the geriatric unit of Jimmy's and I worked there for a little while, yeah. but women were the way the law changed in 1894, women were able to stand for some local public offices mm. and all ratepayers had the vote in local elections, mm. all classes, all genders. Mm. That's something a lot of people don't know. Women did have a vote prior to 1918, mm. just not a national vote and they could stand for some offices. So. And of course there were men who really didn't want women getting above their station. Mm. Yeah. That's at the heart of this book. So mm. it's, um, it's one that's very close to my heart mm. and Annabelle is, well, my partner said, you're kind of in love with Annabelle, aren't you? Yeah. I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, maybe a bit. Um, so you can read more about Annabelle as well and their daughter, Mary. Excellent. Who goes on to become a suffragette when she is older. Mm. I have a couple of books set in the twenties and the forties about a, a woman policeman, police woman mm. in Leeds mm. and, uh, the Denmark and two Denmark novels, 1950s Leeds noir, mm. and then the crooked spire series, which is about to become a murder mystery musical in a theater, not close to you. Mm. Set in 1360s Chesterfield. Mm. So you've got your choices. All you have to do is pick one, mm. actually pick several. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Buy them all. Buy them yeah. all now. 
Yeah. <laughs> Mindless commercialism as well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, thank you very much for doing this, Chris. Um, it's been Thank you very much for asking me. Thank you again to Chris for being my guest. Thanks again to all my guests. And thanks to you, Leeds, for being my subject. And, of course, most of all, thank you to you, my dear listener. Come back on July 11th to hear me speak to someone else. I haven't decided who yet, but I need to take some time out from having to temp full time and keep the podcast going in this awful failing economy. In terms of the show's current support, thanks again to the recent generosity of one of our American listeners. Thank you, Stanley. Sorry the episode is late and I will reply to your email soon. It's been a week. And thanks to my five current Patreons. But this show isn't making any other returns yet. Both the donation and the six Patreons, all of whom have joined this year, signal to me that working hours is viable. There is an audience, an audience that's willing to pay to hear a show about a place called Leeds, a time called Now, and an activity called Work. But donations and Patreon supporters need to be scaled up to make this project viable. This year's going well for the pod, but it needs to level up, don't we all? And to make working hours work, I need more listeners. And to get more listeners, I need more guests. And to get more guests, I need to reach more people. I'm exhausted with social media for the moment. So please, won't you help? I need to increase my Patreon memberships tenfold at a minimum just to keep this show going. It's a lot, but it's doable. And I need to do that soon. So pretty fucking please with sugar on, please help. If you're listening to this and you aren't signed up to my Patreon, then please go to join the Patreon as soon as possible. Or make a podcast and give me something that I would want to work on to work on. If you have listened to five or more episodes of Working Hours, please give me a busker's worth and throw in a one-off donation of £3 or more via Ko-fi. Awesome Patreons, please tell your friends about this show and get them to listen to it. Get them to come on the show. Send your favourite three episodes to three people each who you think would get a kick out of them or who you think should be a guest on the show. Literally any sort of support anyone can give at all will help me to go some way towards keeping the podcast free for anyone and everyone who isn't digitally excluded in Leeds or anywhere else to listen. And even more importantly, it will help me to keep making it. The more you do, the more the podcast can do. Okay, that's me. Cheers, ears. Take care out there and be kind to each other, Leeds. If you're listening to this, I assume you have some connection to Leeds, like living here or being from here. If you're such a person in Leeds or from Leeds and you haven't done your recording for working hours yet, then don't wait. Email me now, right now. Quick, get a pen. Workinghourspod at western-studios.com If you fancy being my guest, put guest in the subject line of your email and add a short bio in the message. Stick in some suggestions of your availability and I'll send you a release form and a Zoom invite. If you'd like to be on working hours, I will need a two-hour window for us to record in. I can record in your work time or during your downtime. I have been recording interviews for working hours for every year on Zoom, but I can also record offline. You can appear on working hours anonymously or you can promote yourself and or your company or brand cleaner or owner what is your experience how do you feel about work what do you like and not like what do you do leads be a part of local history have your voice heard share your wisdom give us the inside skinny this is your show leads and it's all about what you make of yourself do you know what you're doing if you do then come and tell me all about it come on working hours even if you don't know what you're doing i certainly don't email me right now quick get a pen 
workinghourspod at western-studios.com. If you're allowed to do that, that is. If you're not allowed to do that, then tell me why. If you and your business aren't ashamed of what you do, then let's hear all about it. What good are you doing the rest of us? Are you socially useful? Am I? Is this? Send your feedback, questions, comments, and queries right now to workinghourspod at western-studios.com. What is happening, Leeds? Find out by following this show on Twitter at workinghours3 and on Instagram at workinghourspodleads to find out when new episodes are going to be released. Or just use the hashtag hash workinghourspodleads on either of those sites to find me. I'm on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash western underscore studios underscore leads. I'm also on LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Simon hyphen Treen. Treen is T-R-E-E-N. Or you can go to my company page, which is linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash western hyphen studios. If you want to make a podcast in Leeds, whether it's for a cause, a publicity campaign, a product promotion, or your own passion project, then get in touch with me, Western Studios, for support, advice, and guidance on anything podcasts. At Western Studios, you work with a real-life lawyer who is actually in Leeds, who you can actually work with on making podcast content. So don't wade through articles and videos and podcasts about how to make podcasts. Just get on with it. Western Studios can make your podcast with you or even for you. Western Studios can take on your podcast boring, time-consuming and painful admin, recording, editing, transcription, whatever. Tell me about it. I feel your pain. For a charge, I'll share it. Writers, what are you doing with your lives? Hopefully you're writing. Well, I know there are listeners out there who want to hear great original writing performed as audio content and made in Leeds. How do I know this? because I'm one of them. Help me make Muck for Brass, a series of short stories, poems, performers, whatever, all published as podcast content. Is your work arty, salacious, pulpy, strange? Good. I want to make it a podcast. I get practice making the show and you get a finished, performed and published version of your writing. Businesses, campaigns, brands, got an inkling that you'd like a podcast but don't know where to start. Hit me up at make my podcast at western-studios.com and we'll start making your podcast straight away. The first hour of arranged consultation and pre-production time is free. So what do you have to lose? And what are you waiting for? Save yourself the hassle and the headache and make your podcast with a Leeds-based, in real life, podcast producer, that's me, Western Studios Leeds. Once again, please let working hours get big and strong by joining its Patreon Support Working Hours by becoming a champion on Patreon for a pound a month. You can inspire me and motivate me with a membership and maybe one day even be helping to cover all my costs. You can chat to me there and see me do a monthly live stream where again you can chat to me all about the show and God do I need to find someone to actively share this project with. Go to patreon.com forward slash working hours pod right now and sign up please. And or go to Kofi, that's ko-fi.com forward slash working hours and join me there for a pound a month and get access to the working hours discord and chat to me there. I will be putting up additional material on Kofi once there are any members there. Please do remember to like, share, follow and subscribe to this show. Every little bit helps. Tell your gran, tell your housekeeper, tell your gardener, tell your parole officer, tell your boss, tell leads and I'll see thee next time, our kid. Working Hours is presented, edited and recorded by Simon Treem for Western Studios Leeds Limited. 
The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org.